I'm Anna, and I'm a youth organizer who teaches sex ed. And I'm Antonia, and I'm a doula. We're here to share unfiltered information about self-managed abortion, otherwise known as SMA. We've interviewed people with wide-ranging perspectives on the medical, legal, technological, and personal questions that arise within SMA. We've built a chorus of voices that demystifies SMA and a platform that people already have as a part of their daily routines. We're not here to tell you what to do or to advocate for SMA, but rather to share stories. Molly Dunn-Kentney is a midwife, advocate, and educator promoting a full scope and spectrum of midwifery care that predominantly centers the home. So this interview for me felt like I was being accompanied through like a flower meadow of what abortion care could look like. And Molly Dutton-Kenny is just providing a much broader scope of options to the table when it comes to abortion care. And that is something that initially made me uh, not bristle, but I, I just all of the connotations in my head before this interview that I had with herbal medicine uh, for abortion care uh, was just that it wasn't safe and that it wasn't reliable and um, that it was not something that I should be thinking about or talking about. And I still have a million questions about herbal medicine and how it can be used in the abortion context. But I really felt like she did an amazing job of holding our hands and offering both her personal experience with herbs and in um, demystifying a lot of the violence in that stigmatizing of herbal medicine that I had allowed to go unquestioned for myself. Mm. Midwives can go everywhere is also the bottom line. It's like, it's so, so, so essential that we have clinics. So essential that we have care providers that can do a whole host of procedures. But as she says in this interview, it's like, if you can give birth at home, which we are doing, not a lot of people, but it's a practice that especially in these times is growing. If we can give birth at home, we can definitely have abortions at home. Uh, in terms of the risk, it's on a different level. And so to think about what it means to feel safe and to really challenge that safety can only occur in one setting, I think is an important contribution. And she really, she really spells that out. And again, it's not an either or but let's just increase the options because there are lots of different people on this planet with lots of different needs. And we want to meet people where they are rather than, you know, dictating the exact type of care that they want. So it's really about like rebalancing power in a lot of ways. And I think the idea of SMA, as we said, of just like you do it by yourself completely alone is not necessarily true that there are providers who can help you and help you maybe in the exact way that you want to be helped. And maybe that doesn't look like the mainstream way of receiving help. Um, 
but that there, there is a way to receive and to ask for really personalized care and attention and that there are providers out there who will listen and support you. And Molly is definitely one of them. Okay. So thank you so much for jumping on this call. Um, prior to kind of getting into the weeds, if you could provide an overview of your job and your orientation specifically inside the work of birth support um, and abortion support, however you want to share. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Um, my name is Molly and I am a midwife. I have been a registered midwife in some kind of licensed capacity for the last couple of years, but I've been doing the work of midwifery much longer than that. Um, I was born and raised in California in the United States, and I now live uh, quite far from there. But I um, still provide uh, holistic midwifery care, um, both at a distance and in person where I do live. When I say that I provide uh, midwifery care, that means in part what you think it means, which is that I take care of um, people who are pregnant and help them grow their babies healthily, help them have their babies. I work both in a home setting and in a hospital setting. Um, and then I also take care of them in the early postpartum. Uh, I also, as a midwife, um, have a particular specialty in taking care of people through pregnancy loss and abortion. So I take care of pregnant people, no matter how that pregnancy is going to result, mm -hmm. um, provide the same kind of uh, holistic uh, care for people um, uh, as they experience their pregnancies and um, provide alternative care for folks who are uh, managing losses and abortions as well. Right on. If we were to kind of jump to the beginning of the story, knowing that there isn't necessarily one beginning. Um, when in your life did you decide to pursue a pathway towards midwifery? So I actually came to midwifery through um, providing holistic abortion care. Yep. I, um, uh, the first person I ever supported to have an abortion was my mother. Um, mm. I, was, I was quite young. I was a teenager. Um, well, I was out of the house, I was 19, and um, she, she fell pregnant, um, didn't, didn't mean to be, didn't want to be, um, thought she was not at a point in her life when she could be, and uh, we worked together uh, to help her release that pregnancy. She first reached out to midwives in her area. Uh, my understanding is that she had had previous experience with abortion care in a clinical setting, and um, really did not enjoy that experience um, and had had two babies at home and was really interested in whether there was another way to manage an abortion. Um, so she reached out to her local midwives who couldn't help her. Um, and I was like an enthusiastic teenager <laughs> studying holistic health. I knew a lot about fertility awareness and stuff like that. And um, she reached out to me and I often reflect on like, how that decision must have been for her <laughs> to make that call. Good. And like 
what it's like when the only person you know who might be able to help you is like your 19 year old daughter <laughs> like how fucking desperate you know what I mean sorry but like yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that sucks that you couldn't find anyone else sorry like I wasn't that good then you know <laughs> so it's fine it worked but it just it's a it was a funny reflection now where I'm like wow that took a lot of faith you know but she she did she reached out to me and I did my best. We looked through some books together. Uh, we spoke to an herbalist. We uh, mm-hmm. gathered what knowledge we could. Um, and uh, she was able to end her pregnancy at home. Um, however, she was not bleeding. Um, and that made us nervous. And at the time, I didn't know much. I would have handled it differently now. But at the time, I didn't know much. And so we decided mm-hmm. to go into a clinic um, to seek some help. And their conclusion was that we, what, whatever we had done had worked quite well. And that if she just wanted to take a couple of these pills, she'd go home and bleed, um, which she did. And it was relatively uh, easy from there on out by her report. Wow. Um, it was a very powerful experience for me. Um, yeah. It was a very bonding experience, obviously, between me and my mother. And um, as someone who was sort of just dipping my toe in the water of holistic health, that was a really big um, catalyst for me to see the power in that care and how important that care was to her and how this was something we had been told would be really hard or really impossible. You couldn't just end a pregnancy with plants, which is what we were trying to do. Um, and, and we found it was actually quite easy. (laughs) So that was really eye opening. Um, and then about a year later, an old friend of mine from Girl Scouts uh, reached out because she was pregnant. Um, my mom used to be our Girl Scout leader. <laughs> the two of us uh, helped her, and she had a successful herbal abortion at home with some mm-hmm. of the, the extra knowledge we had learned in that year. Um, and it was my mom who first said to me that I should consider midwifery. Um, specifically, she said I should be a midwife, but I should, um, I should do this. I should do uh, abortion care. Um, and that that was a, a really big needed space um, in uh, holistic health at the time, um, still is. Uh, and that, you know, there was no training for holistic abortion providers, but you could become a midwife and maybe that was the closest thing. Yeah. So, um, I, I entertained the idea, but I was very young and I, I didn't know any young midwives. Like all the yeah. midwives I knew, it was like a second career. Like they raised their kids and then they were like, no, I'm going to be a midwife. And even historically, typically midwives are older women. And so yeah. it, it didn't occur to me that I could be a midwife. At the time I was like 22, you know, yeah. and, um, uh, but I was interested, so I started talking to some midwives, and over the next couple of years, I started meeting some young midwives um, and seeing sort of a newer generation of what this work could look like, and um, and it was really inspiring to me. So I did pursue uh, a midwifery um, education, and I'm very glad I did. I think it has, has made me an excellent midwife. I really uh, surprisingly actually enjoy taking care of pregnancy and birth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still maintain a really strong grounding in caring for loss and abortion, which was always the point for me. Totally. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, that's pretty amazing to be grounded in that experience and to have that be the wellspring yeah, for for the work and around this question of holistic like just the use of of that word holistic health would you be able to say what that means to you because I feel like 
I feel like that term for me sometimes gets thrown around and within, I think as well, the abortion context that it's not as utilized. Yeah. So to, to me and to the people who reach out to me uh, looking for health or education in this topic, um, what I mean when I'm saying I work with holistic care around abortion and pregnancy loss uh, is that I I work with a full range of options of management. So while I um, am am grateful that clinical abortion exists, I acknowledge that it's not the only way to have an abortion. Uh, Some people are interested in using herbs and plants and botanical medicine to release a pregnancy. Some people want to use medications. Some people want to use extractions. um, And some people want to go to a clinic. But there is a big, broad range, and all of those things deserve our attention and research and support. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I reject the idea that anything outside of a clinic is inherently dangerous. I don't think that's true whatsoever. Um, and I also would say that uh, I center the home as an option for this to happen in total, that, that people don't need to visit a clinic at all or visit a doctor at all in order to have an abortion. Um, and many folks are interested in staying within the comfort of their home in using the kinds of medicines that they are more familiar with or more comfortable with, um, in using the kinds of medicines or approaches that have cultural or religious or familial significance to them and and or I also do some amount of work with folks who are having clinical abortions but want holistic support around that so they're definitely planning to go to a clinic but they also want herbs to prepare their body and heal their body or they want the equivalent of postpartum care after um, so that they can feel that this experience um, fed them in a different way rather than depleted them if that makes sense totally Totally. With the home as kind of the physical locus <laughs> compared to um, the clinic, which I feel like is so often understood as the site um, where choice is able to happen, that it's kind of this, yeah, it's not as mainstream or clear that the home <clears throat> is available, one, as an option always, and then two, that a provider can come into the home. Like, I think that we, or at least that I, that have this idea of like, oh, there's self-managed abortion. You figure out the information, you know, it, in whatever formats it comes in, however you you do the research versus you go locate the provider in their place of comfort, which usually is the clinic. And then, you know, those are kind of your only two options. But I feel like what you're presenting is that, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, that's not... It's not neither or that there's yeah. there's a middle place or that the provide a provider can can hold space and and provide within one's place of comfort if that's what they choose is that like a false dichotomy yeah, yeah. I mean I think I think there is more uh, attention being paid to the concept of quote unquote self managed abortion that's not a term I use but it's a term being used publicly. Um, there's more attention to that now than there has been. If you even look over the last five or 10 years, um, this was not as widely discussed as it is now. And when we see it discussed um, in media or by, um, you know, organizations or NGOs or abortion support folks, um, they, they do describe what you're saying, that either folks go to a clinic or a hospital and get care for a registered physician, or they 
you know, access things from a flea market or online and they're dangerous by themselves in their home. Like that, that seems to be the two choices. Um, and that doesn't leave a lot of room in the middle. And I actually think most people are somewhere in the middle of that. Uh, I think we often forget that the vast majority of medication abortions that are dispensed from a doctor or a clinician um, happen in the home ultimately uh, without their supervision. Uh, and people access those medications other ways and then do it in the home without their supervision. And then there's other methods that people can do in clinic or clinic can do at home um, with support. Uh, there are some people who, who will do this alone by choice or because they don't know anyone to help them. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say that most people, if they knew they could have holistic support in the home would likely choose that. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that when people are rejecting the clinic as an option, they're rejecting any help. <laughs> I think they're right, rejecting yeah. that kind of help in that setting, and they might appreciate a different kind of help in a different kind of setting. You just said earlier that you don't use the, the term self-managed abortion. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit more to that and, and what terminology or what phrasing feels like it's most accurate? So I just use home abortion. Um, I've always used that because I also attend home births. I, I like the parallel that draws. Um, it centers the, the place of the experience rather than the method. Um, yeah. And that that is the term that most people who write to me looking for help or education use. So I feel like it makes sense yeah. to use the words and the language that people experiencing this are using. Okay. Um, Self-managed always struck me as kind of a funny term because um, yeah. it's, it's like not descriptive. It's like a weirdly general term that could apply to a lot of different experiences, which maybe is a strength of it, but I also find a weakness of it. Um, and I don't know. I, it, it always seemed kind of like, uh, like a cold term or a clinical term or like an organizational academic yeah. term, but it's not the kind of word that we would use in casual speak. You know what I mean? And to, as, as you just said, be able to realize that a lot of this is happening in the home regardless. <laughs> like, yeah. Would you be able to go into a little bit what um, external resources really grounded you in this work at, in the beginning? So I have a real mishmash of self-taught education here, um, which has ultimately been informed by supporting people at home. I think my greatest teachers have been the folks who have been brave enough to ask for help and, mm -hmm. um, and do this together and find the best ways that supported them. That is how I have learned the most. But the first things um, that I really looked into were a handful of um, uh, books on on herbal education. I, I looked at Susan Weed's books. She mm -hmm. has some some recipes in the back of her books. They're okay. <laughs> Those are the first recipes yeah. I use. I've modified them a bit now, but yeah. uh, they're okay. Um, and then I also looked at a book called um, Natural Liberty, uh, which is a sort of an herbal encyclopedia almost of uh, uh, herbal abortion knowledge. Um, it, it lists a lot of herbs that have been historically used for abortion. It doesn't list any like combination modern recipes, but it does list them there. And then in terms of understanding sort of a bigger, broader picture, I also really appreciated a couple of books. Um, John Riddle's books called Contraception and Abortion in the Ancient World, and then something called Eve's Herbs. Um, are both kind of historical tellings of how people have used plant medicine to manage fertility forever. Mm -hmm. um, right. <laughs> mostly grounded in a European context, but he does mention some other parts of the world as well. 
And then um, I also really appreciate Leslie Reagan's book, When Abortion Was a Crime. It's a, yep. it's a very particular telling of what happened in the United States, but it has a really excellent grounding of bringing to light how abortion care has been provided, um, reminding us that abortion was not always illegal in America. It only entertained illegality for about 90 years. Before that, it was legal. After that, it was legal. What happened in between that time and also what happened before that time? I think she really points out that obviously abortion is not new. Abortion has existed forever and abortion has not been terrible until the miraculousness of 1973 and doctors taking over and now we're all so lucky like it, it's a little <laughs> more complex than that and and that in fact the doctors that were our saviors were the ones who criminalized it in the first place and she has a really kind of nuanced telling of um, how we got here today in our state of abortion care and so I really appreciated that for sort of a almost a politicized grounding and why I felt it was important um, not just as a human to take on this care, but as a midwife to take on this care um, and to really reground that this was, um, this is old care and this is care that midwives have mm -hmm. always been doing in their communities. And the fact that we're not now um, is, a, is a deliberate thing. That's not an accident. Uh, and to reclaim it and to reclaim a broader traditional scope of practice for a midwife um, is a challenge, but it's a very necessary challenge of our time, and um, and one that I'm I'm willing to take on, and many other midwives are as well. The phrase "old care," uh, yeah, that feels so ripe. Is that true? Like, just to be able to state that traditionally, for most of all of time, <laughs> that midwives have been the care providers for a full spectrum of choices, in, including abortion. Absolutely. So midwives have not been the only historical abortion providers, but it has historically been a part of uh, midwifery care, for sure. Yep. Um, other care providers in history would include herbalists, eclectic doctors, a, a variety of different kinds of health supporters in community um, have taken on abortion, but certainly I would say most midwives historically have, uh, helped people with their pregnancies, regardless of what that ended up looking like, including loss and abortion. Right. Many communities up until quite recently, and many communities still don't, um, have the like moral judgment around abortion. I think this is also something that we assume that people have always had a problem with abortion. That's not true <laughs> historically. Yeah. Um, and so when I say many midwives always did this, I don't mean they did it in secret and shame. I mean, they did it as a public part of the care that they provided. Yeah. Um, and that was systematically sought out um, to criminalize midwives eventually uh, yeah. in, in the United States and in many other places followed a similar path. Um, but yes, midwives have, have always provided this care, um, especially midwives in communities of color, midwives in immigrant communities, in indigenous communities. Um, that was always something that midwives were doing. Midwives in colonial communities that came to America were doing this as well. Um, mm -hmm. And it's only really when we see um, medicine being brought into a hospital setting, medicine being taken over almost predominantly by men, um, that we start to see um, a criminalization kind of a problem with abortion mm -hmm. um, and, and a specific uh, pushing out and therefore subsequent loss of our traditional providers of abortion. And then we really go into kind of a dark time of abortion care where abortion care became very dangerous. And I think that we assume 
that um, it became dangerous because there weren't safe methods or because it was illegal or whatever, when in reality, it's like a chicken and an egg thing that what made it dangerous was criminalizing its traditional providers, was taking away generations and generations of knowledge of people who had known how to do this safely. And so when those people were pushed out of this role in society in favor of new kinds of medicine um, that didn't understand these contexts in communities and didn't understand how to do this care very well, yeah, then it got dangerous. But that's kind of obvious, right? That if you were to push out people who held any kind of knowledge, it wouldn't go very well. And that's what happened. And now we're like, oh, illegal abortion and out-of-clinic abortion is dangerous. And I'm like, well, it doesn't have to be. <laughs> it just evolved in a very specific way that way. And um, yeah. Yeah. And you, and you see that absolutely playing out in birth as well. It's the same. Exactly. So I, yeah, this isn't a, a novel thing. This is exactly what happened with childbirth. And and those things are, are connected. But um, in particular, the general telling in history is that uh, newer doctors and the profession of medicine really wanted to take on family medicine. And the thought was that you could take on family medicine if you took on birth. <laughs> that, like if you delivered that baby, you were likely to be their care provider forever. Um, but that people really loved their midwives and it was really hard to get a handle on birth in the community. Um, and so midwives really had to be eradicated in order to make space for other people to take on birth care. Um, and a part of that eradication meant um, slandering them. And a part of that eventual slandering became that they are immoral and dirty providers because they provide abortion care. So abortion care and criminalizing abortion care and criminalizing midwives was used as a tool in order to get family medicine within it. But I think they didn't know what they were messing with. I think they had no idea how common this was and how dangerous it could become without um, help, both birth and abortion mm -hmm. um, and pregnancy loss and fertility and all the manifestations of this, which have really suffered um, right. in, the, in the next couple of millennia. Yeah, what's coming up for me now is just also how that has coincided with this, the, the model of specialization, which I feel like is, is totally in direct contrast with this concept of holistic care, that a provider can see one throughout the full extent of one's lifespan, the, the full extent of what might be happening from you know, birth to menopause. And I feel almost mentally that I've been trained out of this concept that like, oh yeah, I can see one per like one person could could do knows, not just could do, but like fully knows how interrelated and interconnected um so many of these aspects of 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 being are. But like how much of the work is is almost education or, or almost just outreach, like showing and telling people that that your type of care is available. No, I, I don't think there's a lot of awareness about that. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think similar to what you're saying, many people have not uh, been raised in a way to consider this kind of care for themselves, to consider this kind of care for their abortions. Um, I find there's like a certain kind of person that finds us easily and most other people struggle. The kind of person who finds us easily is the kind of person who uses fertility awareness to manage their fertility and plans home births. And like that kind of person is the person who would think that this might be an option. But that kind of person is not necessarily the majority of the population. And the majority of the population 
wouldn't even consider that this could be a choice when they're working with their reproduction. Um, and I would say that folks like me, and there are many others like me, uh, we are cautious um, in many of our communities and in speaking publicly because in many places, the kind of work I'm describing is not necessarily a legally recognized part right. of midwifery care or some of the folks who I think are the best at this work are not midwives. They're community advocates, they're moms, they're people who just know a lot about this and I would trust them with my body for sure. Mm -hmm. And so I, I maintain that you do not need to be a midwife to do this. Anybody can do this. Um, and I think there is a lot of concern about the power of the medical establishment, the power of litigation, the power of um, criminalization of this kind of work. Uh, I think we have a, a historical fear of that because that has been our legacy. Um, and I think we have a very real and present uh, fear in our communities. Uh, if we're too public about this work that we will not be able or be allowed to continue. Mm -hmm. um, and that that is especially true in my uh, dear friends and colleagues who do this work in marginalized communities, in communities of color. Um, where they feel particularly uh, policed and watched um, in ways that I have the privilege to not feel. So I, mm. I think this is complex. Yes, I think a lot of people are not aware. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And, and in terms of the specific limitations, or, or what could be some potential traps? I'm going to end with oh. this. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've heard everything. Uh, obscure laws written into criminal code in various states. Um, the United States, where I do most of my advocacy around this work, um, does not have a national abortion law. We have national abortion cases that provide precedent, but we don't have a national law, so it's regulated state to state. Mm -hmm. um, and states have a variety of ways they deal with abortion and a lot of different ways that could um, impact you as someone who's providing abortions or having abortions outside of a medical setting. That could include anything from mail fraud and mail tampering uh, if you're sending things to people. Mm -hmm. It could include um, improper disposal of remains or tampering with a corpse. It could include um, criminalization just of providing an abortion if you're not a doctor. It could include a variety of things, um, different gestations, different methods, different disposal, like just anything you can imagine people yeah. have had thrown at them um, or could have thrown at them. Um, and there is good legal support out there for folks looking into this. Um, the best resource currently is an organization called If, When, How, um, which is a, a lawyer's, uh, a legal organization that focuses on this work. And I, I very much trust them. Um, and so it's not that we are, you know, out in the woods here. There, there is support, there is help, there is guidance. Yeah. Um, and I would say in most states, this remains untested and that um, create some anxiety <laughs> for people uh, pursuing right. this kind of care and providing this kind of care. Are there any common themes or elements around what it looks like for people to feel safe doing this in the home? Well, it's really hard because I think the primary way that people feel safe with this is with a grounding in trust. Yeah. Um, and I think that that can be really hard to build when 
you need care and you need it now and you're a little bit desperate for it and you've never met this person before but they came recommended and you're doing your best you know like it's it's difficult to build quick trust um, in the context of someone needing an abortion which is usually felt in their body like a bit of an emergency you know mm -hmm. um, so there's not usually the luxury of a whole lot of time uh, I and that and that goes both ways <laughs> in terms of someone seeking support as well as someone providing support. Yeah. Important for us that we trust them too, that we trust that they're going to, you know, follow the advice to the best that they can or the best that they want to, that they're going to protect us if push came to shove. And that, um, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of trust that needs to be built very quickly. Um, and that is hard and doesn't always happen. You know, I've, I've definitely provided people and provided um, support and knowledge for people and felt a little weary about working with them and I'm sure they would say the same about me and about some of my colleagues as well um, you don't have to have trust to work together but it certainly does make it a lot easier um, and more comfortable uh, that said I, I would say that I I do believe it's a skill and it's a skill that can be learned how to build trust quickly um, and how to how to establish that you're a safe person um, or a safer person in this circumstance um, and, I, and I do think I work hard at that, and I do think most people feel um, quite comfortable when mm -hmm. they are working with um, providers outside of a clinical setting, um, in part because when people really want that care and when they're able to find that care, um, uh, they're, great, they're grateful that it exists. <laughs> and often it just <laughs> existing is, um, is a huge relief uh, and, and feeling that you're not going to have to do it alone and that somebody's got your back, somebody's looking out for you, somebody's looking at your symptoms, somebody can tell you whether what you're doing is safe or not, um, is a huge relief for people. And, um, and I do think that uh, it, it being able to honor where people want to be, me, me or someone else like me being the first person who says like, no, you're not crazy for wanting yeah. these plants. We can do that. Or, okay, we've got this going on and we've got, you know, some explorations with gender identity and we've got some domestic violence and we've got this and we've got that. Like we, we can explain like, okay, here's all the factors going on mm -hmm. and we need to figure out what is the best possible way to move forward. Um, not just in our immediate context, which is really important, but also in, in helping you know, ground whenever possible options for reproduction forever, you know, and, and yeah. this, this can be an experience that really um, changes the way people think about their reproductive health care. And I think abortion of any kind is often a very, <clears throat> very um, important experience for people. Um, and it, it's often a catalyst for big change in people's lives mm. in a variety of ways. Um, and I, I think it's a memorable experience, regardless of how it happens. People remember them. Um, and it would be nice if that memory could be something um, powerful and meaningful and that showed you how strong you were um, and showed you what kind of care you deserved and uh, what kind of uh, support and, and knowledge and love you were absolutely entitled to. Um, and that that might... Uh, forever raise your standards for reproductive care, which would be a good thing, I think, for most people. But literally in my head, I'm like, oh, is that possible? Well, yeah, it's possible. It's possible to love your abortion. It's possible to feel powerful and strong coming through your abortion and that you manage the heck out of that and that you could do anything afterwards. There are people who come out of this feeling fantastic. You know, yeah. not that we're ever 
thrilled about our abortions, but that the experience themselves can be uh, meaningful and powerful. Totally. And, and, you know, not when inherently exclusively rooted in, in shame or in, you know, confusion. Yeah. It's, yeah. And I, and I really think that people can have really empowering clinic abortions, Mm -hmm. but I find that that's less common. Whereas people who are outside of the clinic, it almost surprises me when they do not describe it as something really powerful and meaningful for them. That is, is really common description actually. Um, and, and part of it is what you're describing that it, that they didn't have to necessarily segment the care that they didn't have to go to a specialized clinic to a doctor that they'll never see again to do this shameful thing that they'll never talk about that rather they were able to stay home and they had a nice person come to their house and explain some things. And then they took it on themselves and they either had that person present or, texted that person some pictures to say, is this a normal amount of bleeding? Am I okay? And they had someone say, yeah, you're okay. This looks good. And, and they had some guidance through this and they came through it feeling like I did that. And I did that pretty well. And it was really hard. And I have a lot of feelings about it, but at the end of the day, um, they did something really fabulous for themselves and they really honored uh, their body and their needs and, and their priorities and their values in that care. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, and I guess I, I want to say that, like, I'm not totally slamming clinical abortions. Some people yeah. have fabulous clinical abortions. I respect clinical abortion providers. But like anything else, I don't think it should be the only option out there. Similar that I advocate that people should be able to have their babies at home. We should be able to have midwives and home birth and holistic care for pregnancies and full-term babies. Why not for abortions? So oh, I, think it's, I think it's important to challenge that for folks. Honestly, as a midwife, there is so much more that could go seriously, quote unquote, wrong in a birth than in yeah. Like, if we are okay, and not everybody is okay, but if we are okay with having babies at home, I promise abortion is way less complicated than that. Mm-hmm. There's many kinds of safety and there's many kinds of risk. And um, there's emotional safety, there's cultural safety, there's personal mm-hmm. safety, and, and physical safety, like some folks don't feel great physically in a clinic. Um, and some clinics have uh, protesters and dangerous people mm-hmm. outside. Um, but yeah, I would say that I don't think that the bar should be whether or not you are able to go into a clinic and have a complete abortion and not have your body damaged. Like that's the <laughs> line, you know, I'm like, all right, I think we can do a little better than that. You know, like I think we can also focus on like, whether or not your provider feels safe for you in using your proper pronouns, whether or not your provider feels safe in understanding your cultural context, whether or not your provider can honor familial medicine and, and what feels right to you and, and what your boundaries are. And um, I think the home setting and removing a lot of those like regulations of medicine can open up a lot more doors for defining personally and individually not only what a safe experience could look like, but also, as we were saying, what a fulfilling experience could look like. Mm-hmm. Something that you said earlier, <clears throat> which is hoping that you could define it. Um, what is, you mentioned fertility awareness. What, what is that? And are there any other uh, things in, in that realm that would be important to, to just clarify or define? Right, yeah. Um, fertility awareness is sort of a generalized term of understanding the, the quote-unquote natural rhythms of fertility in your body. Um, so 
you know, contrary to, to popular belief, uh, women's bodies uh, or bodies with ovaries and uteruses and the hormones that go along with that um, are not fertile every day. Mm-hmm. Um, they're fertile in a very small window uh, throughout each cycle. And each cycle, so the beginning of one menstruation to the next, um, is different for everybody. Not everybody has a perfect month-long cycle. Some people have short cycles or long cycles. But within whatever cycle we have, we have a pattern of fertility. Um, You know, a a standard doctor would assume that someone has a 28-day cycle and that they ovulate, so they release an egg that's possible to be fertilized um, on day 14, so halfway through that cycle. That would be the assumption. Most people don't do that, but that's the assumption. Um, and then the practice of fertility awareness is becoming more in tune with what your body does um, and whether or not you are actually expressing symptoms of fertility every month or not, when those symptoms come. Um, and then with that knowledge, figuring out what you want to do about it. Um, mm-hmm. So some people use fertility awareness-based methods um, to to function as a form of uh, fertility management, like birth control in their body. Um, I did that for a decade of my life. I didn't use any pills um, or or hormonal contraceptives um, or most of the time even barrier methods. I knew when my body was fertile and when it was not. I knew that by symptoms in my body, things like um, fertile cervical fluid, so that kind of slippery stuff you feel on your toilet paper um, or in your underwear uh, typically means that you are very fertile. Um, So I learned when that was happening in my body and I learned how to predict the pattern of that um, and what happened when I uh, went away from that pattern. Um, Mm -hmm. And then also there's other things like the position of your cervix, if you're willing to feel it. Um, and also uh, taking your, your basal body temperature every day, so the temperature when you're sleeping. Um, uh, all of those things combined, some people will chart that in a little app these days, or I used to chart on paper. Um, and you can sort of come up with a bigger picture of what's going on in your body and know when you're fertile and when you're not. So for me, using it as um, fertility awareness for birth control for a while, I knew when I was in a quote-unquote safe time when regardless of what I did with sex, there was no way for me to get pregnant at that point. And then I wouldn't take any extra precautions. And then when I was in a fertile period, if I wanted to have sex and I didn't want to have a baby, um, and for, for me, that was sex that involved a penis and ejaculation and all of that that could potentially uh, make a baby, that I would use extra precautions. Either I would use withdrawal or condoms or something else like that. Mm. Um, and then, so that's actually like how I got interested in herbs, uh, for abortion was that I started practicing fertility awareness when I was 18. Um, and I knew I was going to screw it up at some point. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, I know myself. I was the kind of person who couldn't remember to take a pill every day. So I was like, well, I'm not going to be perfect at it. So at some point I'm going to screw it up. And then I need a plan B and a plan C and a plan D. So for me, the plan B and the plan C, because I still really didn't want to do pharmaceuticals, were plants. Um, so what could I use uh, if I thought, whoops, slipped up a little bit there. I want to make sure I don't get pregnant. And then... 
if that didn't work or I forgot to do that and I get to the end of my cycle and my period doesn't come, now what am I going to do? Um, so that was what really started my exploration into all of this mm. and wanting to not feel like my backup was a clinical abortion, but yeah. that there were things that I could do on my own at home to make sure that my period always came. Um, and I've been very successful for a long time. I'm in a different season of my life now. Now I would really like to have babies. So I'm using the same methods in mm. way to identify when I could be fertile. And I'm trying really hard to have a baby. Um, mm. But I appreciate that the knowledge of my body has provided me all of those different options that I can use this knowledge to avoid pregnancy. I can use this knowledge to try to get pregnant, or I could just use this knowledge to say, this is what's normal in me. And when I start seeing funny discharge or funny symptoms or funny, whatever, I can say, oh, this is not normal in me. And now I can try and look for help that quicker rather than waiting for months and months and then being like, actually, I've had this weird discharge for a long time because yeah. I practice fertility awareness. I'm keenly aware when these things are happening and I'm able to tune into that and, and support that sooner, which is helpful. Yeah. To the extent that you would be able to walk me through this, what could someone expect before, yeah. during, and after a loss? Yeah. I don't mind sharing personally. That's probably more helpful. <clears throat> um, I, I have part of the reason why I feel so passionately about all this is that it's happened in my body many times. I, I have had one um, home-based abortion and I've had five miscarriages um, and I've used fertility awareness to, to understand my body. So I, I know a lot about this and I know a lot about how to support other people's bodies through it as well. Um, I'm also an educator, so I do a lot of teaching on this. Okay, so when I used to use fertility awareness to avoid a pregnancy, I would be tracking my signs and symptoms in my body. And if I think I might have had sex at a time when I might have had sex and didn't use any extra protections during a time when I was fertile, I would usually use a particular plant called Queen Anne's Lace. It's a wildflower, otherwise known as wild carrot, um, to try to prevent a pregnancy right then. Um, Queen Anne's lace is a particular plant in that it's an implantation inhibitor. So it's not a daily contraceptive. It's not going to prevent ovulation. It's not going to prevent conception. Um, and it's not going to affect a pregnancy. What it's affecting is the lining of the uterus. So I like to think of it as like, I'm withdrawing my consent to parent this month. <laughs> you know, like, it's about me. I'm affecting my body, not the baby, not any of that stuff. I'm affecting myself. So... I would use Queen Anne's lace and um, it was, it was quite successful for me or maybe I was just lucky or whatever, but I, I um, strongly know that I had sex at risky times mm -hmm. and didn't get pregnant. Um, and there were particular protocols I used around using this plant. Um, and I felt very confident with that. Um, I'm not, it's a, it's a known thing like other people use yeah. it as well. Um, and then if I felt like perhaps that wasn't going to work or I forgot to use it or I didn't have any or something like that, I would wait until sort of just before I was expecting my menstruation. And then I would use sort of a combination of tinctures and plants um, to just make sure my period came. So in this context, I wasn't taking a pregnancy test. I didn't want to know. I just wanted to make sure that my, that my period came. And that was that. And I just left it at that. It was simple. This wasn't an abortion. It wasn't anything like that. It was just promoting my menstruation to come on time. Um, and there were a handful of plants that I've experimented with over the years. Um, one I used to use a lot was 
black cohosh. Um, mm. It has a long history in this kind of care. Um, my body doesn't love it. <laughs> like, I think it works, but I, like, whenever I take black cohosh, I sneeze a lot. Like, I don't think I'm allergic. I just think it's, my body's a little sensitive to it. So over the years, I've kind of stopped using that one, but I have seen it be quite effective. Blue cohosh is another one. Um, but probably my favorite would be cotton root bark. I like that one a lot. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, there's lots of different preparations and ways to make this medicine and ways to engage with this medicine. I think it's really difficult to just say, like, these are the plants that work. <laughs> All of our bodies yeah. are different, and the ways we want to interact with these things are different. And herbal medicine is meant to be relationship medicine with you and plants. It's not meant to be, oh, I heard this person on a podcast say this name, and therefore I'm going to use that. <laughs> I, would, I would recommend you get a little more in-depth than that. Um, but yeah, there are some plants that I have used that worked well in my body and worked well in the bodies of my loved ones and friends as well. Um, I feel mm -hmm. quite confident with using this kind of tiered um, fertility management. Um, and then, and then there was always escalation, right? If none of that worked, there's other options too that we could actually call an abortion later if we needed to. But mm -hmm. I, I think that for a lot of people who got really in tune with their bodies and, and really understood all of these options, they didn't have to get there very often. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, there were things we could do before it became an emergency, you know, and there were things we could do before we had to call it an abortion. And, um, and I think a lot of people really resonate with that and really say like, it's not that I want to have a million abortions. It's just that I want to make sure my period comes all the time. I'm like, great, you can work with that. <laughs> you know? And, yeah. um, and I think that that, that can really help, um, our psycho, psycho emotional and spiritual connection to this work as well. That, um, and it, and it helps to sort of destigmatize and bring away some of the shame of this is that like, there's a, there's a spectrum here. It's not that you're pregnant or you're not, or you're using these things or you're not. There's nuance in that for some people. And um, wanting to know or not wanting to know and using different methods. Like there's, there's a lot of exploration that can be done here. And mm. I would really like to get us out of <laughs> the space we are in medicine and in abortion care in particular. We're in these really like binary approaches to things. Mm. Like either we're pro-life or we're pro-choice. And I'm like, well, a lot of people are something in between, actually. A lot of people feel fine about abortion, but they have some limitations on what they feel, you know? And like, I actually think that's really common that people have a lot of feelings about a lot of things <laughs> and that there's nuance and complexity and context. And mm. I really wish we could bring that more into the conversation and and bring in sort of individualized personalized opinions and approaches to care and um, mm. and care plans for folks of seeing that like there's a lot out there and and you deserve access to all of it <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so sorry I didn't answer your question so that was what I that was what I started to do with my body and then and then I've I've had a, a home abortion also um, and for me that involved using plants and medications. Um, so I used plants for a while, quite similar to my mother. I ended the pregnancy. Um, I knew I ended it because I stopped having any pregnancy symptoms. Like my nausea went away, mm. my headaches went away. Like the things I feel when I'm pregnant stopped happening. Um, and my body felt lighter. Like I just felt not pregnant anymore yeah, in a really know. palpable way, but I was not bleeding and that, made me nervous um, and at the time I was I was overseas I was in a country where abortion was illegal and where that care was a lot more complicated and so I didn't want to wait around I wanted to mm -hmm. get it done um, so I followed it up with medications um, 
and the medications induced very strong contractions in my body. And I, I had a complete abortion at home. Mm. Um, it was, it was challenging. It's one of the more challenging experiences of my life. Um, I do think that I lost more blood than I would maybe be comfortable seeing someone else lose, but I also know my body and knew my limits and then knew I was okay. Mm. Um, and, and I had the support of my partner at the time. Um, I don't necessarily recall that being like, like I don't have a lot of memory of that. So I don't necessarily remember that being the most meaningful part of the experience, but I know that he was there and, and trying his best. Um, and I, and I didn't have anyone else. Uh, I think I would have liked to, but given where I was and what my options were, I didn't have anyone else I could ask. So I was managing myself. Um, and, and that's okay. Uh, yeah, so so that was hard, and then it took me a couple weeks to recover. I, I did go back to work. I was working as a midwife. I did go back to work, um, and that was hard, too. Uh, but, you know, I was just tender and slow with my body for a few weeks. I used some plants and nutrition and extra rest to help myself recover, um, and I did a lot of talking with people uh, to help myself uh, through that process as well. Um yeah, yeah, that's that's often what it that's what it looked like for me. Yeah. When folks are getting a getting help with a provider, it can look a little more robust than that too. They could also have um, a provider sit with them through the experience and see, um, make sure that they feel confident with what's happening. A provider could also um, provide support over the phone um, or or some other method of communication and. A provider would typically um, also offer uh, post post abortion care. Um, for me, usually the recommendation I give people is that they they provide that kind of care um, for at least a, about four to six weeks afterwards. Um, typically, what I'm saying is you should get care until your next menstruation because your next menstruation is likely to be a little different <laughs> and a little <laughs> a little more intense, a little more painful, a little more emotional. Um, and I find that people have a lot of questions then. So you might as well just keep your care going until mm. then. And then that's usually the time when people want to start talking about their future fertility and yeah. whether or not they want to have more abortions or not and, and how we can help them. And um, so, yeah, I find some of the biggest differences when people are doing this at home is not only sort of that comfort and space to have individualized care, but also the, the aftercare is really really meaningful for a lot of people mm. not just that you had your abortion and you went out into the world and that and then maybe you had an ultrasound two weeks later or something like I'm like that's not follow-up care getting a freaking abortion the uh, <laughs> sound yeah. like that's not follow-up care <laughs> what follow-up care would be is sitting down and talking to someone about how their body is feeling how their emotions are feeling how their heart feels how are they feeling about fertility how to answer some questions about that it's a long conversation and um yeah so I think that when people are, are getting care in, in a different kind of context, they can actually expect um, more attention in that way um, that's, that's designed for them. Uh, and that can be really, really meaningful. It's, mm -hmm. it's actually not something that I have ever had the blessing of having <laughs> the, major, the majority of my experiences in terms of abortion and uh, miscarriage have been mostly alone not not all of them I've had you know six of those experiences one of them was very well supported most of them were not um and that was by virtue of like where I was and what I had access to but I am keenly aware of what's possible um and should I ever need that care again in the future I have a, a short list of who I would call 
Totally. And do you feel like some of that care can also happen virtually? Absolutely. Yeah. And lo- and lots of people can provide that kind of care afterwards too. And, um, and it, yeah, I do think that that, that your geography and, and who you have access to should not limit whether or not you can get that care. Um, you can still get really good advice um, at a distance of how to take care of yourself and, and how to manage your own self and your own body. And for many people, that's sufficient. And for some people, that's preferable. Some people don't want folks in their private space, and I respect that. A final question, then, which is inspired from someone else, Kimberly Ann Johnson. If you were to have a megaphone and you could share one thing to the people below, the birds above you, what would that one thing be? I would want people to know that they have a whole host of options for their reproductive health care and that they are deserving of knowing what those options are, of finding what's right for them, and of individualizing that care in whatever way makes sense to them. Because if what folks really want is to be in a clinic, then I think that's where they should be. (laughs) And if what folks really want is to be at home, then that's where they should be. And that goes for abortion and it goes for birth and that goes for miscarriage and that goes for fertility. That goes for everything. You have options and you deserve to know what they are and you deserve to have all of those options at your feet Um, and, and really treat your body, um, treat your body really well and and know what's right for you and, and get that. I think that, and I think that what I would want everybody to know is that that is possible, that that is not a lofty thing, that that doesn't have to be a privileged thing, that that is something that could be available to anybody if you knew where to look and where to ask. Right on. Mm -hmm. If people want to know more about you or want to share about how people can get in touch. Believe it or not, I am actually like a really shy and private person, (laughs) but I would love to connect with folks who who are looking some help in their in their reproduction mm-hmm. um so i i do have a website um and i have a lot of help to to manage my website and social media because the whole concept of it makes me very uncomfortable <laughs> but, uh, so it's it's my name uh molly dutton kenny so m-o-l-l-y d-u-t-t-o-n-k-e-n-n-y um, dot com and I have uh, classes I have a blog if you like the way I talk about things I got a lot more to say um, and uh, as well uh, a contact page and if you are looking for more resources in your area um, or more um, connections to folks who could help you I would be very honored to be a part of that for you um, so you are welcome to look me up and um, reach out such a privilege. Thank you so much. And that's it for this episode. We want to get these stories to folks who are looking for them. If you know of anyone who wants to learn more about this topic, a friend, family member, or colleague, please share this episode with them. Our goal is to demystify this conversation and what that takes is talking about it. Head over to our website, smapodcast.org, to get the resources discussed in this interview, as well as the transcript, which we have in both Spanish and English. Thank you for listening and have a good one. Mm -hmm.